Blog Talk Radio. Welcome back to Zion's Redemption Radio Network. Today we're going to be covering Chapter 7 of As It Is Translated Correctly, pages 70 through 93, and this will be Part 1. We might be able to get to this whole thing uh, today, but we'll see. Anyway, um, the title of the chapter goals, I'll dedicate the program, and then we'll get right into the reading. O God, the Eternal Father, we come to Thee in the name of Thy Son, Jesus Christ. We ask Thee, Father, to forgive us of our sins and our transgressions, that we might have Thy Spirit to be with us, that we might be forgiven of our sins, that we may be able to have the Spirit to be with us more fully as we go over these topics talking about the Dead Sea Scrolls. Father, we thank Thee for the opportunity to live in such a time where technology makes it possible to deliver this message worldwide to all those who have the we love thee, Father, and we look forward to thy kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And we ask for thy blessings to be upon us as we read and study and ponder over these things today. We do so in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The Dead Sea Scrolls. Chapter 7 of As It Is Translated Correctly, page 70 through 93. For over a decade, nations suffered through the blood and devastation of World War II. Then finally, the announcement of peace gave relief to the whole world. But the thunder and smoke had hardly settled when another worldwide revolutionary proclamation was made. This was the announcement of one of the greatest discoveries ever made in the field of biblical archaeology. In 1947, a cave near the Dead Sea offered up a treasure of ancient manuscripts, portions of the the Old Testament predating any others by about a thousand years. But this was just the beginning of the discovery of hidden caves and ancient manuscripts in that area. Page 71 at 3%. Several vague and uncertain stories have been told of how the first of these scrolls were discovered. One story is of a Bedouin anciently wandering into a cave, and another is of a poor peasant searching for 
Sabaka, a soft soil used for fertilizer. And then there's an interesting account of some smugglers who are trying to find a place to hide. Perhaps the most reliable story, however, is told about a young boy, Muhammad Abhib, who had been tending his animals. He had lost a goat and was climbing up the limestone cliff searching for it. He became tired and hot, so he rested in the shade of overhang, overhanging crag, when suddenly his eye caught a strange hole in the face of the cliff. It was less than two feet around, not particularly wanting to explore it at the time, he picked up a stone and threw it in the hole. Instead of the expected sound of rock hitting rock, he heard the crashing of earthen jars. As he pulled himself up to the hole and peered in it, he saw a startling sight. There on the floor of the cave were several large cylindrical jars with broken pieces all around. It looked like a hidden treasure. He dropped back down to the ground and dashed to tell his discovery to a friend. The next day they returned and entered the cave where they found jars lined in rows on each side. Some jars were empty and others contained bundles of rags. Pulling away some of the wrapping, they uncovered rolls of smooth brown leather with inscriptions on them. The young boys were disappointed because they were searching for a treasure like gold or silver. However, what they found was much more precious than gold and silver. And at the time, they didn't realize that. Page 72 at 9%. Let's see here. Well, in the book, there's a picture, and um, the picture is of cave number one. Uh, So each of the different um, caves, they'll... um, this one being the first cave they found was one Q. Um, there'll be two Q, three Q, four Q, but this one was one Q. Of the Wad of Qumran, in which the young shepherd boy found jars containing inscriptions um, written on pieces of leather. So that was, there's a picture on that page. So on the next page, on page 70 at 9%. Stories abound of how some of the leather scrolls were cut up and used for sandal straps, fuel for fires, and even for wrapping fish. Some were just thrown away as worthless scraps of old leather. The Bedouins eventually brought three scrolls into Bethlehem when they came to sell their milk and cheese. Here they met a local antique dealer by the name of Kondu who bought bought them for a small price, not considering them worth much more. The writing was meaningless to him, but he thought that it might have worth to someone in Jerusalem. So he took the scrolls to the larger city and presented them to the Syrian covenant of St. Mark for evaluation. 
from here becomes a little difficult to unravel, mainly because all archaeological material is supposed to belong to the government. And under the law, any private excavations were illegal. So secrecy and fear created problems and perhaps damage to many of these kinds of archaeological findings. At first, many scholars examined the scrolls some declared that they were forgeries, while others were puzzled and curious. Finally, there were photographs and uh, pictures sent to Dr. William F. Albright of the Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. After studying them carefully, he wrote the now famous and startling announcement that, quote, my heartiest congratulations on the greatest manuscript discovery of modern times. There is no doubt in my mind that the script is more archaic than that of Nash Papyrus, which would be an old record. I should prefer a date of around 100 BC, but an absolutely incredible find, and there can happily not be the slightest doubt in the world about the genuineness of the manuscript. And that actually was um, part of an article that um, was written in the church publication, The Improvement Era, volume 60, uh, page 912. I wish it would have so, of course, Ogden Kraut's using this reference um, because it's the one that he had available, but it would, would have been nice to know um, where they were referencing, <laughs> you know, like the Improvement Era was referencing this, this doctor. <coughs> Excuse me. Anyway, page 74 is 15%. By the time the real value of the scrolls had been realized, the Arab-Israeli War of 1948 made it impossible for this first cave, or 1Q, to be scientifically explored. However, later in 1949, this was done, and other caves were also searched, resulting in the discovery of many manuscripts and portions of manuscripts. Page 95 at 16 percent. In March of 1952, a cave was discovered containing scores of leather fragments, over 30 storage jars, two jugs, a lamp, and two copper scrolls. These copper scrolls were taken to the Palestinian Archaeological Museum, where they rested for three years, avoiding some solution to the problem of how to unwrap the scrolls without damaging the inscription. It was finally decided to cut them in strips, which resulted in only a 5% loss of the inscription. After cutting and studying the 23 strips of the 8-foot document, it was discovered to be a treasure map showing locations of over 200 tons of gold, silver vessels, and artifacts. Page 76 at 19%. John Algro, who worked on these scrolls, said, quote, In my opinion, there was no doubt of its genuineness, nor of the source of this vast wealth. 
listed along with gold and silver bullion are sacred vessels of a kind known to have been used in the temple worship, leaving little doubt that this is the long-lost treasure of the Jerusalem sanctuary described by Titus in 70 AD. Previous to the final siege, apparently the Jews in the city had wisely taken the precautions of salting away this vast wealth in predetermined hiding places in and around the city itself and in the desert to the northeast and east. And that comes from a book called The Mystery of the Dead Sea Scrolls by Algaro, page 494. The map recorded on these scrolls mentioned about 60 different sites all over Palestine where treasures were hidden. For example, under the plaster floor of the room in the Qumran Monastery was found a hoard of 558 Tyrrhenian Tetriarch May coins. The weight of these coins was about 20 pounds. Their present value would be about a million dollars. Some scholars believe these to be only part of the treasure mentioned in this, uh, the Copper Scrolls. The location of these gold coins was described on the Copper Scrolls so far no one has mentioned finding any other treasure that were mentioned on these scrolls. And they're all on page 77 at 23%. The value of these Dead Sea manuscripts has been astounding. Four scrolls of the original discovery were sold for $250,000, another for $90,000, and, and others were valued and sold for various amounts. Because of these prices, speculators, archaeologists, and treasure hunters have been attracted to the area from all over the world. Since this first discovery, there have been hundreds of caves explored, revealing over 400 manuscripts and tens of thousands of manuscript fragments. In over 100 of the manuscripts are, let's see, in over a hundred of the manuscripts are found quotations from nearly every book of the Bible. I think Esther is the only one that wasn't found, which is interesting because Esther doesn't actually contain the name of God. Um, just an interesting, interesting side note. Uh, now, they may have found it, I mean, they're still going through things. Um, and they've kept things silent uh, or quiet, like <laughs> not everything that they found they've uh, made public. So anyway, the greatest find of the manuscripts was located in Wadi Qumran Cave 4, which is my favorite cave. That's where it talks about the Davidic servant a lot, uh, the manuscripts from that cave. This proved to be the remains of a library belonging to a Jewish community existing from 170 B.C. to about 70 A.D. About 11 caves in this area yielded up, a vast, uh, yielded up vast amounts of records, clarifying many textual and historical problems, but creating many unanswered questions as well. 
Discoveries of more caves and manuscripts continued, and Bedouin tribesmen will probably continue to trade, bargain, sell, and sell pieces and even complete scrolls for years to come. Since the discovery of the first Dead Sea Scroll in 1947, a phenomenal amount of publications have been put out on this fascinating subject. Ynir Erickson says, quote, If one were to read one book or publication a week, it would take 14 years to read all that has appeared on the Dead Sea Scrolls. It would require the same intensity of reading for two years to read what has appeared in English alone. More than 800 books and articles have appeared since 1947, and that comes from a book called Do You Know What the Dead Sea Scrolls Are? by Erickson, pages 1 and 2. We're on page 78 at 29%. There are many types of literature contained in the scrolls. However, much of the information is biblical in nature. They consist of psalms, sermons, hymns, thanksgivings, and historical or doctrinal expositions, most of which are unfamiliar to historians and theologians. Some of the titles that have been determined are the sayings of Moses, the Testimonia, the War Scroll, Book of Mysteries, Patriarchal Blessings, Wisdom, The Coming of Doom, Psalm D, The Book of Lamech, Jubilees, Testament of Levi, The New Testament, or the New Covenant, um, Gospel of Truth, Gospel to the Egyptians, The Secret Book of James, the Apocalypse of Paul, the Letter of the Law, the Wondrous Child, Epoch of Time, the Last Words of Amron, Apocalypse of Peter, Letter of Peter to Philip, and the Gospel of Mary. Many others have been found which include the Apocrypha, but most of them have yet to be translated and made available to the public. Some of the more interesting manuscripts are prophetic, and scholars have speculated that they were meant to be discovered in the latter days, as Hugh Schoenfeld wrote, quote, It would appear that in the caves of the Kurbet Mran area, we have stumbled upon books designed for the faithful in the last great struggle with evil, books for the skilled to understand, and not meant for not meant to be assembled before the time. And that comes from a book called The Secrets of the Dead Sea Scrolls by uh, Schoenfield, page one hundred and fifty nine. We're on page 79 of this uh, chapter at 33%. The Kirbet, Qumran, meaning the runes of Qumran, have provided archaeologists with astounding discoveries that have excited public interest throughout the world. We're on page 80, uh, 34%. 
archaeologists have uncovered portions of the foundation of the Qumran community and have reconstructed realistic maps and mo models. Quote, let's see here. Map of the Qumran Monastery Foundation as it may have appeared about the time of Jesus's picture. And that's the uh, explanation of that picture. Anyway, we're on page 81 now, 35%. Scholars of the Qumran text are trying to find similarities to the Masoretic text, which is the closest resemblance to the modern Bible translation. But even with the Dead Sea Scrolls, we find translation errors. Quote, yet even at Qumran, it can hardly be doubted that the Masoretic text was gaining ground by its intrinsic merit, and it's certainly well represented among the biblical fragments of the fourth cave, as well as the Isaiah scrolls from the first cave. It was never inviolate, however. Changes from its prototype have certainly been introduced over the centuries of its uh, transmission. Whether from slips of the pen or deliberate alterations to smooth over the inherent difficulties in the reading, or even to introduce readings more in conformity with the theological standpoints of the time, sometimes in Qumran fragments we have a variant reading of a difficult passage which offers nothing in clarification over the Masoretic text but at least shows that both texts found the same difficulty and tackled it in different ways. All this demonstrates that although the standard text of our Bible is certainly very old and very reliable, it has not been without some scribal errors and adjustments which will not allow for it any false claims of originality. And quote the Dead Sea Scrolls by John Allegro, pages 79 through 80. John also gives an explanation for changes made by both ancient and modern translators when he said, quote, the public, one presumes, is more interested in having a translation which is as near as possible what the prophet spoke or wrote than an accurate rendering of a particular Hebrew manuscript. And that comes from the Dead Sea Scrolls by Allegro, page 82. Many of the teachings of the Qumran community are also closely identified with Christianity that, that it causes great enthusiasm among Christian scholars. And we're at page 82 at 41%. Through the reading today, I don't think we're going to have any problem making making it through this whole chapter. So, usually I'll have a really short chapter, but I'll talk so much and add so much to it that it, it takes a lot longer for me to read the whole chapter. Um, but this is pretty. Uh, this is all really interesting, and I really enjoy this stuff. Um, and I have read books about the Dead Sea Scrolls, but I am by no means an expert in it. Um, <clears throat> although I do have some interesting stuff um, that I probably won't get to today, but it talks about 
um, it talks about the uh, the de- uh, the Davidic servant a lot. Um, uh, the prophet of Qumran actually declares um, that he has uh, red hair and that he's got certain marks on his face and that he is um, a little bit overweight and like just really interesting things. And then it talks about it his life, his life as a child, the the kind of things he went through, the kind of things he goes through as an adult, um, how it's just really interesting. So like that combined with what Rabbi Yitzhak Kadori talked about um, when he um, he was given information by God about the Davidic servant or Messiah ben Joseph. And um, I, I don't know, I, I'm not going to go on that tangent. Uh, at this time, I've talked about it before, but it's all really interesting. It all ties in together, and it's just like, wow. Uh, and, you know, I can, like, show people those things and show how my life, matches those type of those things what has been prophesied about me um and then talk to them or talk to people about my experiences being called by god face to face and um it doesn't seem to make a difference to to anybody that like people just stand far off and they're like okay well whatever but a lot of people in their ignorance just scoff and laugh and poke fun at it. And, yeah, and some people even get <clears throat> to the point where they want to threaten me with violence or threaten my family with violence. So I don't understand people. The worst people, and I, I'm sorry, I'm going off onto a tangent, but the worst people are those who have an air of religiosity when you call them out to call them to repentance, they become the most vile creatures that you could imagine. Um, these wolves in sheep's clothing, like you'll think they're the greatest people in the world until until somebody like me calls them to repent, and then they're just vile, disgusting vermin. So, in fact... Um, actually had a run-in with uh, a cesspool of vile, disgusting vermin yesterday. Um, so, anyway, so we're on page 82 at 41%. Um, let's see here. Yet so many texts are filled with the law of Moses that it is, it is a puzzle as to their real identity. Interesting. However, the teachings of both Old and New Testament are in agreement with the doctrines of Mormonism. N. Kerr Erickson has studied these comp- comparisons and wrote, quote, These documents contain many interesting doctrinal parallel- parallels found only in the LDS literature. And that is from the book, Do You Know What the Dead Sea Scrolls Are? by Erickson, page 10. It is not necessary here 
to make an extensive doctrinal study comparing the Dead Sea Scrolls with Mormon doctrine. However, religious teachings from the scrolls are of great interest, and a few of them are outlined on the following pages as explained by noted scholars, led by a prophet. According to the Qumran exegesis, the prophets knew by revelation what God was going to do at the end times. See, this is what I was talking about before. And, like, when you get more, this, this is just a brief summation of what actually is in there. But when you get into this stuff, it's so fascinating. It's just like, wow. In fact, I didn't know about this at all until, so I started my programs, podcasting, in um, January of 2014. And that same year, I had a guy uh, contact me from Philadelphia. And I was like, um, he wanted me to baptize him. And I was like, sure, if you come out to Utah, I'll baptize you. Because we'd moved to Utah in 2013. Anyway, so he flies out, and we like go, and he wants to be baptized in living water, which is fine, uh, other than the fact that it was cold living water. But, um, but we found a place in Murray, Utah, where the Jordan River ran through, and it was deep enough, but it, there was a bit of a current. Um, so anyway, we went out, and um, I baptized him, and I had to push him into the current. Uh, to push him completely underwater. <laughs> I mean, like, there was, like, it wasn't a rapid, but it was pretty fast water. And, like, I was having a hard time standing. Um, not, not getting pushed down, you know. So, anyway, push him down into the water, and, and he comes up, and he's very happy that he's been baptized by me. And, and I'd asked him some questions before, but I asked him again. And we were sitting there with me and my my wife and my kids, and we're just sitting there talking to him. And the kids are playing, of course. And I said, what made you believe me and my claims and, like, what I, what I say on my radio program? Because at that time I was more um, – I talked more about – I talked about all these things. I talked more about my experiences with God. And um, people even thought I was being arrogant. And I was like, God told me to be bold. And so I'm bold. And you claim that I'm arrogant. Anyway, but this man, he says, well, you said the description. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, you said the description of what the prophet of Qumran talked about in the Dead Sea Scrolls. You have a red beard. You look like what the person said you would look like. And when I uh, when I talk about or when you talk about your life, you meet the you meet the description of the end time servant in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And I was like, oh well, well, okay, well, what what? <laughs> Anyway, so it, it was at that point that I actually looked more into um, Q4, which is uh, the 
the interesting artifacts from Cave 4, which is where a lot of the stuff of the Prophet of Qumran and the Thanksgiving letters are from. So anyway, it's just interesting. Anyway, continuing on, um, let's see. This additional revelation was given by God to the teacher of righteousness who communicated it to his disciples. They had accordingly an insight into the meaning of the Prophetica one oracles, which was denied to other Jews, and they were um, conscious of the favor which God had bestowed on them by initiating them into the mysteries of his purpose and the time and manner of its fulfillment. And that comes from Illustrated Bible Dictionary by Tyndale House, Tyndale House Publishers, Volume 1, page 373. So we're on page 83 at 46%. A great prophet at the second coming of Christ from the scrolls, scrolls, we learn that the people were waiting for three particular figures as foretold in the Old Testament. Number one, a prophet like Moses. Number two, a Davidic Messiah. And number three, a great priest of Aaron's line. The latter would be the head of state in the New, the, the new Age, the Davidic or the David Messiah would be a warrior prince who would lead the host of Israel in victory over the sons of darkness and describe the third figure. And this also is into Messiah ben Joseph. Messiah ben Joseph is actually a direct descendant of David and Joseph. But um, but the Jews talk about this this legend that they that they have in their writings of this uh, this um, this general basically. Of course, Jesus Christ when he comes back, he's going to be a lion. He'll be the lion of Judah. But but just like John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus to come the first time, the Messiah ben Joseph will prepare the way for um, for Jesus to come the second time. So let's see here. The prophet like Moses would communicate the will of God to his people at the end of the age, as Moses had done at the beginning of their their history. But until that time, the restoration community constitutes, um, constituted a living temple, the general membership being the holy place and the inner council of the Holy of Holies with praising lips and obedient lives as acceptable, acceptable sacrifices. And that comes from Illustrated Bible Dictionary by Ten. Tyndale House Publishers, Volume 1, page 372. The secret, the secret doctrine of God's identity. One tradition attributed to him, Valentine, the poetic 
evocative gospel of truth that was discovered at Nag Hammadi, Valentinius claims that besides receiving the Christian tradition that all believers hold in common, he has received from Thaddeus, a disciple of Paul's initiation into the secret doctrine of God. Paul himself taught this secret wisdom. He says not to everyone and not publicly, but only to a select few whom he considered to be spiritually mature. Valentinius offers, in turn, the initiate, those who are mature, into the wisdom since not everyone is able to comprehend it. And that comes from a book called The Gnostic Gospels by Elaine Pagels, um, page 43. All right, the Trinity. And that's, uh, we're on page 84, and we're at 51% now. Let's see here. Oh, I was just checking the studio to see if we have any caller. <sighs> Excuse me, it is 3.07 a.m. in the morning on February 1st, so it doesn't surprise me that we don't have any callers. There's a chat room open, too, but it's fine. Anyway, um... The Apocrypha of John relates how John went out after the crucifixion with great grief and had a mystical vision of the Trinity. He saw in the light a likeness with multiple forms, and the likeness had three forms. The Gnostic description of God, or the Godhead as Father, Mother, and Son, may startle us at first, but on reflection we can recognize Yet, as another version of the Trinity, the Gnostic Gospels by Pagels, page 61. And that's interesting because, like, there is a group of Gnostics in the Mormon Church that are like, oh, the Holy Ghost is God the Mother. Oh, the Spirit. Um, no. Um, God the Father has a body of flesh and bones. And so does his wife, because they were resurrected on an older earth. Jesus Christ has a body of flesh and bones as well, because he was resurrected on this earth. But the Holy Ghost is not God the Mother. Okay. Um, I know that there are some individuals who are really trying to push this nonsense but um <laughs> so if you want to go through a logical conclusion on this i guess so um god the father has a body but god the mother doesn't because she had to wait so that she could be the holy ghost here i'm sorry that's not that's not correct and it actually goes against what Joseph Smith talks about, and it goes against the scripture because Jesus Christ, and I was actually thinking about this a lot yesterday, he actually warns the people, like, I will forgive you of all manner of things, whatever, and all manner of blasphemies, but let me warn you, when the Holy Ghost comes, he will not forgive you. I guess the Holy Ghost is more of uh, 
more hard-headed, I guess. I don't know. Okay, I can only speculate as to what Jesus Christ meant. Um, but it was a warning. But but um, he uses he and him pronouns, not she and her pronouns in the script in the actual scripture, right? So this whole idea that um, that God the Mother is the Holy Ghost. No, she's not. She's not. At all. So, I wish people would... But you know what? I wish people would get that out of their heads, but there's so many different paths of false doctrine for people to go down that there's thousands of different religions in the world and millions of different uh, thoughts on theology and interpretations of Scripture. And you know, the only in scripture are the only interpretation of scripture that matters. It, it's not yours. It's God's. So, all right. Oh, let's see here. Jesus was married. All right. This is a subsection of this chapter. The title of the Gospel of Mary suggests its revelation came from a direct intimate communication with the Savior. The hint of an erotic relationship between him and Mary Magdalene, by the way, was his wife, may indicate um, indicate claims to mystical communion. The Gnostic Gospels by Pagels, page 21. See, and they, they like talk a little bit about this, but like they don't even go into any detail as to what the Dead Sea Scrolls say about these things. These are little tidbits for you to like, oh, the Dead Sea Scroll talks about these things. Maybe I should go study them out better and go into more detail. That's all this is, all right? Um, it also talks about marriage and children in heaven. In regards, one of the worst things that could befall a member of the community was to go so far astray from the covenant that they would be prohibited from having children in the hereafter. And this comes from um, Cave 1 or 1QS um, 14 and 1QS 13. So... 1Q means this is the uh, the first cave that they found the Dead Sea Scrolls in, and these are the numbers of the fragments that talk about these things. And that comes from, uh, do you know what the Dead Sea Scrolls are by Erickson, page 13. Uh, it also talks about uh, a divine mother in heaven. From the secret book comes an account of our immortal mother. She is the image of the invisible virginal, perfect spirit. She became the mother of everything, for she existed before them all. The Gnostic Gospels by Pagels, page 62. And we're on page 85 um, at 56% through the reading today. Members of this group prayed to both the Divine Father and Divine Mother. From the Father and through the Mother the two immortal names, parent of the divine being, and thou dweller in the heavens, humanity 
of the mighty name, and that comes from the Gospel of Philip. Other texts indicate that their authors had wondered to whom a single masculine God proposed. Let us make man in our image after our likeness, which is talked about in Bereshit, or Genesis chapter 126. Since the Bereshit account, or Genesis account, goes on to say that humanity was created male and female, some conclude that the God in whose image we are made must also be both masculine and feminine, both the father and the mother. And that comes from the Gnostic Gospels, but I would agree with that. Um, let us make men in our image, male and female. So, all right, let's see. Um, note, the Jewish, Christian, and Islam religionists Indicate that God the Father is masculine If there is a masculine Father wouldn't it be reasonable To assume a feminine mother The Catholics regard Mary As the mother of God Yet they deny her divine claims As God the mother But the Dead Sea Scrolls Indicate a family of relationships In the council of the gods As father and mother and son And real quick (laughs) If you understand the progression of the gods, this doesn't become a problem. But let me just tell you, when God took me up many years ago and he was showing me, because I was asking, where did God come from? Like, where did, where did all this happen? If you existed before the Big Bang, um, like, did you just exist in the void and you spoke it into existence or what? And God brought me up and he took me to a place and he showed me a vision of of the past. And we came into this cloud of light. And he told me that this was the intelligence. And each, um, there were orbs of light within this cloud. So the, fur, the further out it was, it looked like this big, massive cloud of, of light, kind of pulsating a little bit. It, It was really pretty. And then we came down into this cloud of light, and there was all of these orbs of energy. And God told me that this was um, the intelligence. And he said, look, and I looked, and there was a flash of light. And um, I saw the intelligence split into two orbs of light. And God told me that when the intelligence becomes self-aware, that there is a male and a female spirit that is born. And then I was informed that what I was seeing was the beginning of God, the eternal father and mother, which is incredibly significant. Um, I was shown a whole bunch of different things during this time, Um, but um, I was also taught that that our mother in heaven took upon herself the name of God the Eternal Mother and became an Eve on this earth. And our Father in heaven took upon the name of of God the Eternal Father, whose name is Adam, and became an Adam to this earth. 
but his name, our father, and our mother are Michael and Beshora. And it's interesting because God showed me this, and I've been hearing people talking about it, um, like starting to talk about these things. And I've been talking about these things for 10 years now. Like this month is the 10-year anniversary of me starting my podcast. And in that time, I have literally created thousands of hours of podcasts talking about all these different things, right? But I hear people talking about our God being called Ashura, and that is true. Our God is called Ashura. But I don't know where in the world they're getting this from other than the fact that I received revelation about it. And I've been talking about this for 10 years on my radio programs, and yet no attribution. People take it and they run and they're like, oh, that sounds good. I think I'll just start saying that too. And that's fine. But like, where are you getting it from? Where did I get it from? I got it from the Father. He gave it to me directly as his witness. So for people to be using this, um, this knowledge without any attribution... I don't know, it's just, um, I don't know, I, I don't think I appreciate it, and I don't think God's going to appreciate it, and if you believe those things, great, but why do you believe them? Because at first, I spoke it to you, as a prophet of God, but you re- <laughs> the majority of the masses reject me as a prophet, but they'll take the information that I talk about, and um, and run with it. To make themselves look better, I guess. I don't. I don't even know. I. I'm so. I'm so sick of, like. I don't know why anybody would ever want to be a prophet. Like, go back and read the Old Testament, and and all of the prophets. Like, don't look at the Q the Q15, in the church today as as an example of being a prophet, seer, and revelator. Look at the scriptures in the Old Testament and the New Testament and the Book of Mormon and, and the, the Pearl of Great Price, and then go back and see what happens to prophets in their day and age. Like, not fun. Okay, I'm glad for all the information that I have. I am thankful that I know that God loves me. I am not thankful that I have to share the message among a world of wicked troglodytes especially as the world is getting more wicked. But even those who claim to be righteous, they still reject the message or they don't do anything about it. So part of the reason why I'm doing this is to set the house of God in order with knowledge and information that God has also given me under his own very hands, his own physical hands, the keys and the authority to do the work that I'm doing in order to redeem Zion and to seal the hearts of the children to the fathers and the hearts of the fathers to the children through the law of adoption and through what God has, has chosen to, uh, as far as um, Zion's redemption. And it's not with derision and scorn on almost every side. And then a laissez-faire um, attitude 
among those who might believe, but they're not sure. So, whatever. I actually was sent here to this area. I think it was 2016. And I was told to tell the people that this is the place of gathering and this is where they should gather to. And I've been telling people that they need to be rebaptized. I received ordinances through me, and I've talked about why. Um, for years and years and years, and like very few actually heed the warning, but nobody actually heeds the warning, this is the gathering place. So, yeah. There will come a time when I'm vindicated, and you will all realize your great mistake. And um, I know I'm going off on tangents, but we're just going to talk about this real quick. In Isaiah chapter 49, it talks about the, the woe of the servant and how, like, nobody will listen to him. And he had these children that he lost first, but God will give him a new children. I am first sent to the to the, the people of the restoration, to those who believe Joseph Smith and believe the Book of Mormon. You're the people I was sent to first. And you have the greatest condemnation. And I will lose the majority of you and God will give me another people. So I'm doing my part to the best of my ability, but eventually the time will come when when you're cut off completely and God God chooses another people. So, all right, let's get back into the reading. The Melchizedek priesthood. Indeed, one of our texts, the future messianic king, as identified with Melchizedek, king of Shalem, mentioned in Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 through 20, the Dead Sea Scripture by um, Theodore H. Gaster, page 26. As for the priesthood, they shall be a seat for the Holy of Holies, inasmuch as all of them will have knowledge of the covenant of justice, and all of them be qualified to offer what will be indeed a pleasant savor, savor to the Lord. And that comes from the Dead Sea Scriptures. Agaster, page 61. Sorry, something just hit me. Um, Uh, God just revealed to me something that's disturbing. And I don't even... I don't even know why. I'm sorry. I'm going to go on and... um, and read the, the rest of this chapter and then 
I'm just going to think about what God is showing. God basically revealed to me that um, that the enemy um, destroyed the interior of the Salt Lake City Temple on purpose. As Blair thumbing his nose at uh, God. And I guess if you uh if you assume that um the the Q fifteen of the uh Salt Lake City Corporation are truly prophecies and revelators, you really would understand why um God uh why Satan would wanna destroy the inside of the temple as a way of thumbing his nose at God. Um, but um, according to Doctrine and Covenants section 124, Jesus rejected the church in Nauvoo. And those men who used to stay in his prophecies and revelators, they are nothing more than false administrators all the way from Brigham Young all the way through. Uh, And in fact, these days, they're more than false administrators. They're Babylonian businessmen who have hijacked the church. On July 13th of 2013, Daniel chapter 12, prophecy came true where the man clothed in linen severed or scattered the power of all the holy people in the last days. The power was the priesthood. the, uh, The severing or the scattering, that is is a severing of priesthood. All these individuals who think that they have priests upon the earth, they don't. When God told me to do this, I didn't know that that prophecy existed. Um, and I, I said, um, I said, why do you want me to, to use the authority that you gave me to sever the priesthood of, and the ordinances of all of the holy people on the earth he said because if they will not accept you as my witness I will not accept them and he explained to me that you have to come through me to me to get your uh, baptisms and your um, ordinations done and all they who will not accept these things will be rejected And I just find it interesting that shortly after that, God released um, spiritual, mental, and physical plagues upon the earth. And we're seeing this mass confusion in the Western world about the trans ideologies and the um, 
all of the things that are going on right now. It's just it's um it's because of spiritual plagues that that have been released upon the earth. And partly that has been allowed because of the severing of the priesthood of all the holy people, which is mentioned in Daniel chapter twelve. Anyway, I'm sorry going off on that t- tangent, I just um God just hit me with a ton of bucks and I'm trying to find the words to to communicate as simply as I can what God just revealed to me sometimes is not easy on the fly. So anyway, let's just get back into this reading. They are extend they are to extend forgiveness to all among the priesthood that have freely enlisted in the cause of holiness, and we're on page 86 at 62%, and to all among the laity that have done so in the cause of truth, and likewise to all that have associated themselves with with them, that sees scriptures by Gaster, page 52. It talks about the the 12 apostles, there are 12 men of holiness who act as general guides to the community. A remarkable correspondence with the 12 apostles. These men have three superiors answering to the designation of John, Peter, and James as the three pillars of the church. And that's talked about in the Dead Sea Scriptures. And this is all talked about in the Dead Sea Scrolls, but that. That's referenced in the Dead Sea Scriptures by Gaster, page 39. For administrative purposes, there is also a kind of presbytery consisting of three priests and twelve um, especially qualified laymen. These presbyteries are known as the Men of Holiness. The Dead Sea Scriptures by Gaster, page 11. As the New Testament, there are twelve apostles. There the twelve apostles are the next tribal chiefs, and the letter of James is addressed to the twelve tribes of the of the dispersions among the community of tri, community the tribal system corresponded to an ideal ideal. Thus the Supreme Council in the pre-Messianic age appears to have been formed by 12 laymen and three priests. And that comes from the Dead Sea Scrolls in English by J. Uh, G. Verms, page 17 and 18. The executive head of the party seems to have been a, skeptic, a special council of 12 men and three priests, ideally represented representing the 12 tribes of Israel and the three priestly families ascended through the three sons of Levi. Excuse me. The Dead Sea Scrolls by Allegro, page um, 112. And it's 3.33 in the morning, in case any of you are wondering why I'm yawning. Anyway, we're at 87%. Or no, I'm sorry, 87%. We're on page 87 at 60 Seven percent, and uh, let me just um, 
take a drink here for a minute. I will be right back. Okay, I'm back. I was getting pretty thirsty there for a minute. All right, so we're on page 87 at 67%. Bishops, priests, and deacons. It has, as we have seen, been suggested also that the office of bishop in the church has its origin in the Qumran overseer. The uh, de- And that's talked about in the Dead Sea Scroll by Allegro, page 163. So today one man is bishop and tomorrow another. The person who is a deacon today, tomorrow is a reader. The one who is a priest today is a layman. Tomorrow, for even on the laity, they impose the function of priesthood. And that comes from the Gnostic Gospels by Pagels. Uh, Page 51, the priests alone are to have authority in all judicial and economic matters, and it is by their vote that the ranks of the various members of the community are to be determined. And that comes from the Dead Sea Scriptures book by Gaster, page 63. And real quick, um, this is just a little tangent. So they had deacons, right? Did you know that in the New Testament, in order to be a deacon, you had to be the husband of one wife? Look it up. I actually have a friend, um, my friend um, Joshua Erickson. Like that was one of, like there was a lot of things that uh, caused him to leave the LDS church uh, just looking into the history and realizing how far off the mark they, they had gone. But one of the things that really bothered him is how in the old uh, in the New Testament, deacons were the husbands of one wife, and it was essential that they be the husbands of one wife, not twelve year old kids. Like this whole system that they have now is not biblical, not all. And Joseph Smith in the Times and Seasons of April 1844 said if they contradict former revelation or if they contradict the Bible, the Book of Mormon, or the Doctrine and Covenants, speaking of the Doctrine and Covenants they had at the time of 1844, then you set them down as imposters. And for people to ordain 12-year-old little kids who are not married contradicts former revelation and you have to set those people who do those things down as imposters not to mention all the other things that they uh, that they do in the modern church that um, that don't go along with scriptures like uh, we're supposed to be kneeling for the sacrament we're supposed to be taking um, the cup of sacrament and blessing it we're supposed to be doing that with either the Aaronic priesthood sign or the uh, the Melchizedek priesthood sign, which is um, the right right arm to the square or both arms to the square. Like, but that you know that doesn't happen anymore because we're supposed to be using water. Now they use or no, I'm sorry, wine. 
In fact, that revelation that talks about uh, in the section heading that Bruce Herman Conkey wrote, he's all like, the revelation where we're, we're told that uh, we can use water instead of that, – that, if you read the flipping revelation, it never says that. It says use wine. It's, it says use wine. It says use wine of your own make because your enemies are trying to poison you, but it does say wine. And it actually says – or strong drink, and what would be strong drink? That would be um, hard alcohol, basically. There's a symbolism to the alcohol that is a, uh, a symbolism of purity that wine does, or that water doesn't uh, convey. But you know, these uh, Babylonian businessmen who have decided to hijack the church and change everything around for whatever reason. They feel the uh, the entitlement that they can just do whatever they want, so which is why the house of God is out of order. Which is why Jesus Christ talked about that in Doctrine and Covenants section 85, where he said he would have the Son, one mighty and strong, to set the house of God in order, implying that it would become out of order. Anyway, continuing with the reading, little literal descendants of Aaron as bishops. It is interesting to note that only the sons of Aaron were entitled to be the bishops of the community and that there was a presiding bishop over all of the bishops. CD and uh, 1QS, do you know what the Dead Sea Scrolls are by Erickson Page 13, excommunication. Furthermore, if any member of the council transgressed the law of Moses, Either deliberately or through negligence, he was expelled forthwith, and none of his former brethren were permitted to have any contact with him. The Dead Sea Scrolls in English by Vermes, page 27 and 28, and we're on page 88 at 71%. The Revelation from God. The Book of Hymns, the faithful frequently declared that they stand in eternal congregations of God, hold direct converse with him, and share the lot of the holy beings. And that is the Dead Sea Scriptures by Gaster, page 14. No priestcraft. At any time they put novices in office at another person bound by uh, secular employment. And that's uh, recorded in the Gnostic Gospels by Pegels, um, page 50 and 51. Rewards for the righteous. The manual of discipline, it is said that if the community abide by the prescribed rules, it will be a veritable temple of God, a true holy of holies. Um, the members of the community style themselves the elect or the elect of God, and that's from the Dead Sea Scriptures, Gaster, page 14. The Manual of Discipline says that the faithful will receive a crown of glory, Peter, James, and John, or Yehov. It is true, use a similar image, but in Mandian thought, the lustrous crown plays an extremely important role and is frequently mentioned in the hymns of the sect. 
and that's from the Dead Sea Scriptures by Gasser, pages 21 and 22, a united order. All goods and wages are placed in a common pool administered by an overseer or superintendent. A similar office presides over the allocation of communal tasks and duties. And we're on page 89 at 75%. Members of the community dine together and the food being first blessed by the priest. Everyone sits in order or rank or class. They also meet together regular for prayer and study. The Dead Sea Scriptures by Gastro pages 11 and 12. The sacrament. They set the table for a meal or prepare wine to drink. The priest is first to put forth his hand to invoke a blessing on the first portion of the bread or wine. The priests are to occupy the first place. The elders are to come second, and the rest of the people are to take their places according to their respective ranks. Dead Sea Scriptures by Gaster, page 54 and through 55. Talks about the pre-existence. In are all that is and ever was comes from a God of knowledge before things came into existence. He determines the plan of them, and when they fill their appointed role, it is in accordance with his glorious design that they discharge their function. Or die, I guess. Now this God created man to rule the world and appointed for him two spirits after whose direction he was to walk until the final inquisition. It is God that created these spirits of light and darkness and made them the basis of every act, the uh, instigator of every deed, and the director of every thought. The one he loves to all eternity and is ever pleased with its deeds, but any associate with in any association with the other, he abhors and he hates all its ways to the end of time. And that comes from, that's a quote from the Dead Sea Scriptures by Gaster, page 48 and 49. And we're on page 90 at 80%. Degrees of glory in heaven. A few of the texts describe the multiple heavens with magic passwords for each one. And that comes from the Gnostic Gospels by Pagel, uh, introduction page 35, or XXXV. <laughs> Dr. Sidney B. Sperry, professor of the Old Testament languages and literature at Brigham Young University, was not too enthusiastic about the contents of the Dead Sea Scrolls. He first his, his first disappointment in them was a lack of similarity to those texts which are used in our standard versions of the Bible. Said he, despite the supposed antiquity of the scroll, its text is inferior to the convention, conventional Hebrew text that has come down to us, and that's recorded in the Improvement Era, volume 61, page 33. He also was disappointed that it was inferior to the conventional Hebrew text of Isaiah quoted in the Book of Mormon. 
if you have any problems with the Isaiah text in the Book of Mormon, just know that there's something that you probably don't understand. You know how God likes free agency and he allows people to do stupid things sometimes? Edward Grandin saw that the Book of Mormon was quoting Isaiah, but he also saw that the that the the quotes were not correct as to what the King James Version stated. Also, the fact that um, that the manuscript had no capitalization, spaces, or punctuation, it was kind of difficult for him to to set the type for that. So in an effort to ease his burden of having to go through all of this mess, whenever he saw that there was a quote of Isaiah, he'd pull his King James Version of the Bible out, and he would set that as the type instead of what Joseph had written. That is a fact that you can take to the bank. That is what Edward Grandin did. And that's why we have King James Version um, Isaiah passages that are incorrect as to what Joseph Smith translated or was given from the, from the, uh, the Golden Plates, from the Record of Mormon. That's on Edward Grandin. I know that God's probably forgiven him for all of that by now, but God gives, allows us to have free agency, and he did these things, and it was not caught. Joseph Smith talked about how he wanted to find a printing press that he could trust to do the work of binding the books, and they did have, the, uh, have a printing press in Nauvoo. Um, that they were using for other things, but they were talking about having the Book of Mormon, um, the correct version of it, um, reprinted in the Cincinnati Press, and, uh, and then Joseph was murdered, so that never happened. So Many Christian scholars think that the teacher of righteousness referred to the scrolls uh, referred to in the scrolls was Christ. And, and you know what, they're, they're right. The teacher of righteousness was Jesus Christ. But anyway, the, John the Baptist was in Qumran for a period of time. Dr. Sperry feels that the importance of the scrolls has been highly overrated and their practical importance to Latter-day Saints Excuse me, is relatively small, and that's in the improvement era of um, 6149. And you know what? When people who are educated find out that they're wrong or that there's evidence that they're wrong, do they repent and do they, they know because they're so built up in whatever it is that they, um, that they thought to begin with that they can't let it go? Because that would mean that they let go of their own pride. Um, I'll another drink, so I'll, hold on, I'll be right back. Okay. It's 3.49 a.m. 
and uh, we have a, a pellet stove in our house, and it wasn't on when I came down here, but then it turned on because it's on the thermostat, and oh my gosh, it's getting warm in this room. I'm like starting to sweat a little bit. <laughs> However, the more information and translations of these texts are being made available, the similarities that support the gospel as the Mormons know and teach it is remarkable. Scholars and students around the world have been disappointed that more work has not been done towards the making towards making information from the school schools available to the public. See, they don't want you to know all that's in them. Like, it goes against the narrative of the Illuminati and the One World Order and the Bilderbergs and all of that. So, anyway, Dr. Theodore Gaster expressed the same feelings when he said, only a fraction of the material recovered from Qumran has yet been published. And we're on page 91 at 86%. And after nearly 20 years, so relatively little has been made generally available. The Dead Sea Scriptures, um, preface page 15 or XV, most of all the research has been confined to a scroll team who is very restrictive on what material is being made available. John Algro also expressed his dismay that what has happened to the scrolls, quote, what is perhaps even more disturbing is that this partial boycott of the scrolls on the part of Christian scholars is the cloak of secrecy that has hung over the acquisition and disposal of these vital and often more controversial documents since 1956. The scrolls have been secretly unearthed by the Bedouin, fleetingly glimpsed by specialists, and then allowed to disappear off the face of the earth, even when others from the same cache have early on been rescued by the prompt actions of the Jordanian Department of Antiquities, they have lain hidden away in vaults in a foreign-controlled museum, for several years, and only the vaguest information on their contents is allowed to be reached, allowed to reach the outside world. When publications, um, when publication is eventually allowed by the trustees, it is on the ex- extraordinary basis of selling those rights for vast sums of money to foreign institutions. Meanwhile, attempts are made to dissuade visiting archaeologists from joining expeditions to search systematically for more scroll caves, and the curator of the museum comes to Britain to tell television audiences that such searches are best left done to the illicit excavation of the Bedouin, who presumably can be relied upon to channel their discoveries through the Museum for Rich Rewards, and that uh, is a quote by the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, a reprisal by Allegro, um, page 14, and so we're on page oh, 92 at 92%, look at that, interesting. 
the Catholics had a practice of suppression, suppressing the manuscript of the Bible from the common people, and now we see signs of the same thing happening, happening regarding the Dead Sea Scrolls. It displays a folly of man through the ages, always arranging anything and everything for money, covering up truth to support false traditions and superstition, and above all, to protect his statue, statues. Jesus was aware of this only too, only too well when the other chief priests met in council to do away with him, because he might take away both our place and nation, John 11:48. It is little wonder that the Lord has not given us more of these ancient records, old manuscripts, and revelations. It is difficult to put new wine in old bottles. John Allegro seems to be one of the few honest historians that have the courage to speak the truth as he knew it. The fact is that we know very little about the man Jesus or his background. The sayings attributed to him in the New Testament are mostly in translation out of context and full of allusions to the lost world of the Jewish sectarianism, which of which um, even now we are, hard, we are hardly aware. Here and there, the scrolls have enabled us to pick up a word or a phrase which for the first time can be given its original import, but we have to acknowledge that a great deal have um, has been lost in translation, early misunderstandings, perhaps in, um, irrevocably, and that comes from Mysteries of the Dead Sea Scrolls Revealed, um, Allegro, page 175. Any genuine scholar with the correct understanding of the history and the scriptures would probably say about the same. It stands to reason that if Christians today are to learn the true mission and teachings of Christ, they will have to depend on more records accompanied by the principle of divine revelation. We're on page 93 at 98%. So I think this is the last page. It's just good because I want to get up and start moving around and maybe go stand outside. It's probably like, I don't know, 15 degrees outside, and I'm sweating, so that would feel good. <laughs> anyway, page 93 at 98%. The portions of the Dead Sea Scroll that have been exposed to the public have proved to be very informative and interesting, but to the Mormons, it is only another confirmation of their faith. The added warmth of a familiar hearth. To them, the restoration of ancient records is only the fulfillment of God's promise that they shall speak out of the ground, and thy speech shall be low out of the dust. And thy voice shall be as one that hath a familiar spirit out of the ground, and thy speech shall whisper out of the dust. And that is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 4. Such things are not surprising to the Mormons. They are expecting 
even more. So anyway, uh, the next time I come back to read the next chapter of this book, it'll be chapter 8 of As It Is Translated Correctly, starting on page 94. And the uh, title of the chapter is The Apocrypha and the Canon of Scripture. So I hope that everybody has enjoyed um, the reading for today. And uh, and I'm thankful that everybody had the opportunity uh, that has listened, uh, that you have, uh, you know, that you're listening and that you, um, hopefully you find something educational about this. So, all right. Um, so, the final comment. I don't do this very often because I don't do lives very often, but I'm going to do something. Um, we have 31 minutes left in the live stream, and then and then we have an hour of overtime past that. I'm just going to play part one of The Final Prophet, where um, I read about all of these interesting things that are in the Dead Sea Scrolls as part of a little bonus. Um before this chapter. So here we go. Let's see if it works. Um, this is a clip that I created a long time ago. And it's, it's part one. It's 12 minutes and 26 seconds. And then I might do part two, but that one's 43 minutes. So we'll see. All right, here we go. This is the final prophet part one. And it is uh, talking about the Dead Sea Scrolls and all the interesting things. So. Welcome back to Zion's Redemption Radio Network. I'm your host, Mark Lickenwalter. Today we're going to be reading a book called The Final Prophet. It's not one of the normal books that I read, but it's really interesting and I wanted to share it with everyone. But... Uh, I'm not going to be doing a reader program on this one. We're just going to read it. Um, you can read it for free online, and I'll put the link in the, distri- uh, the description of this video. But before we get into this, I want to tell you why I'm reading this book. So in 2014... I had a man who flew out from Philadelphia and he wanted me to baptize him. And he was the first of all the people that I had baptized as part of doing this ministry. 
So we took him down to, I picked him up at the airport with my wife and kids, and we took him down to the Jordan River, and we found a place where the water was pretty swift, but deep enough to, uh, to baptize him. And it was pretty cold, even though I think it was, it was August. Anyway, so we both stood in the swift water of the Jordan River and I baptized him into the current and then afterwards we were drying off sitting at the picnic table and I said, why, why did you want me to baptize you? Like I talked to him before that, but I never asked him why. And as we're sitting there, he tells me that I fit the description of the final prophet. And I thought that was interesting. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he told me, well, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, it says these things about the final prophet. And the prophet of Qumran in the Dead Sea Scrolls actually talked about you. And you fit the description of the final prophet. And I said, oh, well, that's interesting. Um, part of it was my red beard, he said. Um, and then just my lifestyle and the things that I've done and how things have been in my life. And I said, oh, well, that's interesting. And anyway, so we, he continued on with me for about a week and a half. And we actually went to uh, Kevin Kraut's camp out, which if you know, you know, but uh, after about a week, I took him to the airport and uh, and he flew away. <laughs> Never saw him again. Last I heard, he was in Israel. I don't know what he's doing in Israel, but that's where God wanted him to be. And I know that God has chess pieces all over the map of this earth and he's got his servants where he needs his servants to be so anyway after that I went and I started looking up red beard final prophet and most of the stuff that I found was that Muhammad had a red beard <laughs> and they called him the final prophet and I thought well that's interesting but I continued to look and look and look and I I found this book using the internet. It wasn't easy to find. Because most of the stuff about the final prophet that has a red beard talks about Muhammad. And I'm not Muhammad, so... Anyway, this book I found online. And I was amazed by it. And I actually did cover it on the Kingdom of God or Nothing radio podcast radio internet radio show and podcast but I don't think I've done that since I had to revamp and do this new program another reason why I found it really interesting is because well for those of you who know my history 
Um, my grandparents served seven missions for the LDS church, but my mom was really inactive. And I eventually became a Baptist and completely rejected Joseph Smith and the Restoration. But in 1995, as I was laying on the top bunk at my, in my bed in the dorms at Job Corps in Clearfield, Utah, where I was getting training to become a diesel mechanic, I was laying there one evening, and I think it was either a Sunday or a Monday. Actually, I think it was a Sunday. Actually, I know it was a Sunday because we were hanging out in the room and a bunch of us were talking and my friends were like, hey, let's go down to the cafeteria and get food. And I was like, oh, I'll just, I'm going to stay here. So they left the dorm and I was all by myself. And I'm laying on the top bunk looking at the ceiling. And, excuse me. And... uh all of a sudden, I was caught up in the spirit. Now, this had happened to me before, and I never control when this happens. I don't even know when it's going to happen. When it happens, all of a sudden, I'm out of my body, and I'm going to a place. Because God has something to show me. And so I was like, and I always enjoy it, because my body, ever since I was young, is full of pain. But when God takes me up in the spirit, I don't feel the density of my body anymore, and I don't feel the pain of my body anymore. And I enjoy these experiences. I wish that they happened more often. But anyway, so I'm flying between Clearfield Job Corps and the Salt Lake City Temple at the speed of sound. Maybe the speed of light. I don't know. It was really fast. Everything was flying by. And all of a sudden, I am in the bottom rooms of the Salt Lake Temple. And Jesus Christ is standing there. And he tells me to come with him. And he leads me through the Salt Lake Temple. Now, I had never been to the Salt Lake Temple before. And I saw many things in that temple... Actually, everything in that temple I had never seen before because I had never been there before or seen pictures of the inside or anything. So we go and we, I follow him and he shows me all these things and all these rooms and we go up through the celestial room and we go up, uh, we go down the hallway by the, by the Holy of Holies in the celestial room and then down by the, the hallway by, there's an office on the south it's south of the celestial room. And then we, like, go down this hallway and we go to this stairway and we go up these stairs and we go around and he shows me a council room and then he shows me, like, where the prophets meet and then he shows me another room and then eventually we're in this, on this stairway that goes up and around and it is in the middle tower on the eastern side. 
and he leads me up to this door, which I later found out was the highest room in the temple. And he he says, go in. And I was like, okay. <laughs> I went in that room and it was like going into love times infinity. Like there are no words to describe how powerful the peace, joy, and love of God is in that place. It is almost overwhelming. Before I went in the room, as I'm standing there at the threshold of the door, well, it's not a door, it's a passageway, and there's no veil or anything, it's just open. But I looked in and I saw that there was an altar with a place where you can put your knees and a place where you can put your elbows and kind of kneel but not kneel. And it's only got one side and it faces towards the east, which would be facing the the east side of the outside of the temple, which on the other side of this is the big plaque that says House of the Lord. So, and also, if you're looking at the front of the temple on either side, the north or the south side, there are two round windows, and those windows are there to put light into that room. Now, I've looked at diagrams and a whole bunch of other stuff. They don't admit this room exists, but it's there, and you can see the windows for it. Anyway, so I'm I'm looking in, and there's like, it's just like a simple room. And I go in this room and it's like, boom, overwhelming love and just like Holy Spirit power, like, oh my gosh, ineffable, amazing. And I heard a voice. And I knew who it was. It was the voice of the Father. And he said, you will be the final prophet. And then that's all he said. And then, boom, I'm flying through, like, the speed of sound back, probably faster than the speed of sound, back to my body. And when my spirit entered my body, it was like a jolt of lightning. And I was like, oh, my gosh, what just happened? And at the time, I was a Baptist. I hated the Mormons. I thought Joseph Smith was a false prophet. It wasn't until a year later that I had a very traumatic experience and I decided to write God a letter and tell him, if you will heal me and show me the truth, I will serve you for the rest of my life. And it wasn't long after that that I met Elder Bowman and Elder King in Layton, Utah. And when I heard them teach about Joseph Smith and how he didn't know what church to join because, like, they all had good arguments, but basically, like, he couldn't figure it out. And he read in James chapter 1, verse 5, if you lack wisdom, ask God. 
actually it was his sister who showed him that scripture and that's how he found it he wasn't just reading through the bible his sister showed it to him but anyway but he he said well you know if god says that he will give me wisdom on the matter i will go ask him and he went into the woods near his home and he knelt down and he prayed and he was attacked by unseen forces now I knew what that was like because that had happened to me many times in my life where Satan would bind me he would scratch me he would bite me he would try to suffocate me and this type of thing, even though Joseph doesn't go into detail, I knew that this this kind of thing happened. And he called upon the name of Jesus Christ, and immediately he saw a light descend from above his head, descending down upon him, and in the light... He saw two persons whose he says his whose brightness and glory defy all description standing above him in the air. The one pointed at the other and said, "This is my beloved son. Hear him." When I heard that witness, the Holy Spirit just—it was so peaceful and so of Holy Spirit power I don't even know like I was just blown away and I don't know if I, I think I've heard that before but I just I just wasn't ready to accept it but like when they told it to me it was the first time in a long time I had felt peace Not long before that, I had tried to commit suicide. Because I wanted just to end it all. So when I felt the spirit, I immediately recognized it. When the missionaries were there. And when they left, I went to the loft at the apartment that I was staying in behind the Layton Hills Mall. Those apartments are still there. That room still exists. And I knelt up against the bed that I was staying at my friend's house. And I asked God if Joseph was a true prophet and if the Book of Mormon was true. And when I asked in the name of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit descended up upon me like hot oil, starting at the crown of my head, flowing through my whole body like hot cleansing oil. from the head of the top of my head to the toes of my feet and as I was kneeling there in my mind's eye and in my ears I saw 
innumerable hosts of heaven, praising God with all their might. After this experience, I can never deny the reality that Joseph Smith is a true messenger of our God and his Jesus, our Redeemer. Because of my conversion, I started going to church, but all I had was these black clothes because I was a goth. This is back in the 90s. And in fact, the first time I went into church, everybody, when I walked into the chapel, everybody stopped and they were staring at me and like you could hear a pin drop. And the missionaries ran over and they grabbed me and they like took me with them to sit down up in like, I don't know, the third bench in the front from the pulpit. And that was like, I think that was a stake, state conference, which I didn't know what that was at the time. Maybe I did. I don't know. Anyway, because my grandparents were LDS, and it's not like I hadn't been to church before. But, um, and my mom, she would, like, try to get um, welfare from the church, so we would go to church sometimes. But whenever they had stake state conferences or ward conferences like my mom would always be like and I think my grandparents did this too they'd be like oh yeah it's vacation week <laughs> we don't have to go to church like it was a duty to them they had to go my grandparents anyway well my mom too because you know she wanted that welfare food anyway so I, I was baptized in 87 and, like, I was given the ironic priesthood, you know, and a lot of that had to do with my my aunt and uncle when they would take me for a couple weeks here or there. They would, like, make sure to get me ordained <laughs> or whatever, you know. Anyway, but um, So I went to church, and because of my conversion, my friends that I was staying with, they kicked me out in the middle of winter. It didn't matter to them. Like, I thought they were my friends, you know? I almost died of hypothermia that winter. Because I was a goth, these self-righteous, over-righteous, whatever you call them, hypocrites is what I call them like nobody in the church would help me like I lost my place to live in the middle of winter and had to walk the streets for like five or six weeks from December of 96 into January of 97 because of my conversion 
And all I get for it is kicked out of the place that I'm staying and no help from anybody at church. Luckily, the government helped me. I went to them and I was able to get an emergency food stamps card. So basically what I would do is I would go to Albertsons on Antelope Drive and Main Street in uh, Clearfield, Utah. And I would buy something I could put in the microwave across the street at 7-Eleven. And then I'd go over to 7-Eleven and they would let me cook it in the microwave. And then I would, they also gave me a bus pass at the government office. So I'd ride the bus around, you know, just to stay warm. And uh, I remember there was this green box by the Arby's and the McDonald's by... There used to be an Albertsons in the Kmart on the corner of Antelope and Gentile. Anyway, I'd go, and there was, like, multiple buses that would go there. So, like, if a bus showed up, they would stop, and then they, I guess they'd figure that you were probably looking for a different bus, and then they would leave. And But there was this green electrical box, and on, on days what, that were a little bit sunny, I would, like, lay on that box and just warm up try to get warm and then I would walk all night long because I knew if I stopped walking that I would probably die of hypothermia which I had had in the past in Boy Scouts so anyway uh, my grandparents um, my grandpa actually was laying in bed one morning and he heard a voice and the voice told him to go find me and send me on a mission. Now, I talked about all of this in the past and this is not what this program is about, but I'll go through a really quick rundown of things that happened after that point. I was called to serve in the Georgia-Macon mission in the South, which was interesting because I was a Baptist when I was younger. Um, I got my patriarchal blessing, which says, and I give unto you the greatest gift that God has to bestow the gift of eternal life. I asked a stake president and a stake patriarch when I noticed that language. It wasn't the one that I was, not where I got the stake, uh, the patriarchal blessing, but anyway, I asked them. What does this mean? And they both said the same thing. That it means that you've had your calling and election made sure. So then I would go to God and I would be like, how is it possible that somebody like me, who was a drug addict, who was homeless, who has been in hundreds of fights, who has been severely abused and neglected, and all the things that have happened to me, how in the world is it that I just meet the missionaries like four or five months ago 
and I'm getting my patriarchal blessing, and it says that I have been given the gift of eternal life. How is that even possible? And I would pray, and I would ask God that, and he told me, it's not because of who you are in this life. It's because of who you were before you came here. And then I would be like, what do you mean? And he wouldn't say anything. He wouldn't say anything. Now, God has been directing me and speaking to me, and I know he lives. I know he exists, and I knew it before that, and I know it even more now. But he wouldn't give me any more information. So I studied it out. I studied everything that I could on calling elections. Which, basically, there isn't a whole lot. I mean, there's some. But, like, it's mostly speculation, you know? And Peter says that we should all make our calling election sure and I'm like well okay well how do you do that and what does that even mean right and I kept asking over the course of many years through my mission I asked after my mission I asked I was an over the road long haul truck driver for many years and I didn't really have award that I went to because one week I might be in Cincinnati on Sunday another week I might be in Denver on Sunday another week I might be in Toledo on Sunday or, or, or Laredo or San Antonio or you know Ellensburg Washington or Los Angeles, California. You didn't know where I would be from one Sunday to the next. And if I was in um, Ote Mesa in Southern California and San Diego, one week I might be in Vermont next Sunday. I might be in Hamilton, Ontario or British Columbia, Canada, or Miami, Florida, or anywhere in between, anywhere in North America, because I was an over-the-road truck driver. And I hustled. And as I would drive, I would listen to audiobooks on tape, and I would listen to CDs, and I would spend my, my off time reading books. And when I was in the, the truckers' lounges, I would be talking to people, doing missionary work. And if I was stuck somewhere, I would go find some non-denominational or Baptist church or whatever, and I'd go pick a challenge to the <laughs> to the Baptist or to the Methodist or to the Lutheran or whatever and I was on fire. <laughs>
But all those years, I asked, what does it mean to have your calling and election made sure? And one day, when I was on a load from from Salt Lake City to Los Angeles, I didn't have to be down to Los Angeles till Monday morning, and I left Salt Lake on, like, Friday, so plenty of time, which was fine because... You know, if I like to st- I like to stop and and if something if I'm worrying I'm thinking about something I like to stop and and just read, and then I'll read whatever it was that I'm thinking about. And then I'll drive, you know, and whatever. So I'm asking God on the side of the road south of Beaver, Utah. Again, what does it mean to have your calling and election made sure? And I had been reading something, and I've been just pondering and trying to understand what this thing means. When I was caught up in the flesh, but my flesh was removed from the truck. Like, I was sitting in the passenger seat, and I had this steering wheel desk that I'd put over the, the steering wheel. And I'd put my scriptures on it, and I'd be reading and I'd be praying. I was completely removed out of my truck. Like, my body went through the walls of that truck. Don't even know. Kind of like, I think it was Peter that was taken to the Ethiopian eunuch. Like, and then he baptized him, and his body was there with him. And he went down into the water, and he baptized the guy, and then he went back to Jerusalem, and in the blink of an eye... That's how I was moving through the immensity of space and air of this earth. And I was taken so fast, like faster than the speed of sound. It was like, it was like lightning fast, faster than thought. And I found myself in this place that was It was like this little valley, little valley, and there was a small creek, I don't know if it was small, it was like, I don't know, 15, 20 feet across, anyway, so I'm standing there and God says, wash off in the creek, stream, river, I call it a creek, anyway. He says, wash off in the creek. And I go down and I wash off and I felt the coldness of the water. I felt the breeze. I saw the the grass moving in the breeze. And there was a lot of, like, grass, like long prairie grass, I guess. And then there was sagebrush. And there were trees off in the distance. You know, there was a canyon where the stream went down and off in the distance. And then... There was this, what I can only describe as a cattle path. And God said, look. And I looked, and he said, follow the path. And after I washed off, I got up, and I followed the path, and I followed it. And I climbed the beginning of these foothills, and I kept following it. And there's no trees anywhere, but there's sagebrush and grass everywhere, right? And I keep on following it, and I go around this cliff, and I go up around 
this mountain. And these, this mountain is not huge, but anyway, I go up around, well, I guess it kind of is. It, it took me quite a while to, to climb this mountain. And I went around and I stood on top of the cliff that the path went by at the bottom of the cliff. And then I continued following the trail and I kept walking and I kept walking. And eventually I was on the top of this mountain that was this big round mountain, but it was really long. And like I could look down one side and like it was pretty far down both sides, but like it was really wide. Anyway, and there's this path and it's just right along the top of the mountain. And I continue to walk and it keeps on gradually getting higher and higher and higher. And I continue to walk and then I come into these pine trees. And there's trees everywhere. And I continue to walk. And like I said, this experience is taking a lot of time. But I'm going to listen to God when he tells me to follow this path. And I'm following it. And I walk through the woods and the trees. And up ahead, there's a clearing. And it is the top of the mountain. And at the top of the mountain, there was a small white temple. Which I was not expecting to see. And I walked up to the doors. And it said something to the effect. Now I'm doing this all by memory. I'm not reading. And I wrote all of this down. All of it's written down. Like, as soon as it happened, as soon as I was back in my truck, I wrote every detail that I could could remember down. And, like, it was so vivid in my mind at the time. And it still is. I can still, as I'm telling you this story, I see it still. This happened in 2003, almost 20 years ago. And I see everything that I'm telling you. I can I can tell you details. I can tell you that I smelt the sagebrush and the wind or the breeze. I could smell the pines. I can see the creek. I can hear the creek. All of this is so burned into my memory. But I'm walking up to this temple and I get to the to where the door is of this temple. And above the door it says house it says house of God or house of the Lord or something to that effect. And there was writing on the door and it said, Enter in that you may obtain your calling and election. And there was actually a place where I could take my shoes off and leave them there and walk in, which is what I did. And I went through the doorway and I went into this room and there was this foyer. And there was some furniture and so to the left there was a hallway. It was pretty wide, but the foyer was wider 
And like if you looked at the diagram of this, it would be like an L, I guess, with a fat part at the bottom and then the hallway was the stem that goes up, right? So anyway, and it was really, really neat. Like the walls seemed to give off their own light, but there was a chandelier and there were these white glowing stones like the brother of Jared had or like Noah had in the ark that lit up the inside of the ark. And the chandelier was just filled with these beautiful glowing crystal stones. Like not glowing, but like emanating light from them. And I walked down the hallway and there was a, I don't know, a hallway table, I guess. And on the table there was this vase with these white roses and the white roses gave off their own light and it is why my favorite flower today is white roses because of that experience and I continue to walk down this hallway which is probably about 15 feet long it wasn't long maybe 20 feet long I get to this doorway and it is covered by this really thick velvet type curtain. But like, it's not thin velvet. It's not like just this weird, it's not, a, it's not anything I've ever seen before. This curtain was literally about six or seven inches thick. And it was hung on an iron rod with gold tips and these gold rings and I put my hand through this curtain or veil and I parted the veil and I went into this room and I saw a great magnificent light on the other end of the room I went in the room and I walked towards the light and as I got closer to the light and I started to come into this glory I saw a man standing in the light one man and I got closer and I immediately knew exactly who it was and I fell flat on my face before him and he called me by name and he said get up and I stood up and he opened his arms to me and I embraced him in the flesh I embraced him he embraced me This was and is our Father in heaven. And I know that he lives because I have seen him face to face. And that he is not a spirit. That he has a physical, tangible body that I have felt with my own two hands.
And he told me to kneel in front of him. And I said, what are you doing? And he said, I am sealing you up unto myself that you may be sealed up unto eternal life. And I knelt before him and he placed his hands upon my head. And as he began to speak, light emanated from me. So he has his hands on my head. I have my arms folded in front of me that I'm looking down at. And light is bright white light is emanating from me. And it was so surprising. I did not expect it. And I was so distracted. that I did not hear what he said. He told me what he was going to do and why he was going to do it, but he didn't tell me everything about that experience. And he didn't... I, I didn't hear what he said, and I, that was by design. He needed to give me something. He made light emanate from me and I don't know if he did that on purpose or what I, I assume he did because he didn't he needed to do something but he didn't want me to know what it was he was doing but he needed to do it to me which later on I found out what exactly he said because I was ready at another point 10 years later but at that point I was not ready I was not ready to know what I know now And after he finished, he told me that, that I would, am going to go with Jesus. And Jesus was there, and I embraced him as well. I looked into his eyes. I saw the smile on his face. I embraced his flesh as well. And we went back towards the beginning of the room... Now, remember how I told you that the foyer and the the hallway were like an owl? Well, that's because there's a room on the other side of the hallway in, that's in this larger room. And it's a place where you can go sit down and just talk. So Jesus tells me to sit, and I sit, and he he says, you can have three questions. And, like, honestly, I was so full of questions. I was like, okay. He says, think about what you're going to ask me. <laughs> and I was like, well, what about this and what about that? And, and, and like, and my, my questions were like a bunch. And I was 26 years old at the time, so forgive me. But my questions were a group of small questions within a larger question. And he was patient and we talked for quite a while. And he told me things and um, about my life and about my wife that I had not met yet and about what he wanted me to do. And he talked about my past. And one of the things he said about my past is something that I think is really beneficial for people to know, which is that he allowed me to go through all of the things that I went through and that he allowed that for his wise purpose. 
that I might be made into the servant that he needs me to be. And as hard as that is to hear, because as hard as this life has been for me, I can accept it because I know that it was his will that I went through the abuse and the neglect where I had to turn to, well, I turned to drugs and that wasn't working out for me, so I turned to him. And he took all those drugs away, which by the way, when I was, when I wrote that letter, I said, if you'll heal me and show me the truth. Well, when I asked God if, if Joseph Smith was a true prophet and the Holy Spirit burned through me like hot oil, I didn't tell you this, but the drug addictions that I had at the time, they were all gone. God took them all away. So anyway, Jesus and I get done talking, and then, um, I, you know, I walk to the door, and I exit the temple, and then I am flying at, like, the speed of light, or the speed of thought, back to my truck, and, like, I get into my truck, and I'm like, what just happened? And, like, I was so completely exhausted, but I had enough energy, and I just wrote all of the things that happened and then I passed out and you know what that was in 2003 I didn't really share the experiences a whole lot I didn't share them publicly I did tell some family members I did tell some friends I wanted people to know that these things still happen So I made videos. In 2008, there's YouTube videos of me. And I'm like 400 pounds and I have no facial hair and my hair is really short and I look really dorky. And back then, YouTube only lets you do like 15 minute videos, 10 to 15 minute videos. So I had to like hurry up and, and you know, condense it down and share and I, I would always be like I knew this guy who had this experience let me tell you about the experience because Paul he said I knew a man in Christ above 13 or 14 years ago whatever it was who you know who was caught up to the third heaven you know so he and then he was talking about his own experience but he you know kind of was not wanting to share that it was him. And at the time, I believed the LDS church because they would say, you know, don't cast your pearls before swine, which means don't talk to people in your congregation about your spiritual experiences or deep doctrine. You know, it which drives me nuts because, like, they're telling, basically telling their members that they're swine, which is not okay. But anyway, so I shared this experience in this YouTube video as though I heard about it. 
And I'm pretty sure I can find those videos again. That The links are still good. As far as I know. <sighs> and actually, I... I think I've screen recorded it and put it up on uh, my YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash user forward slash God is my compass. But anyway, so, um, so I had this experience and I continued to learn and to grow. God gave me visions. He took me up in the spirit. He gave me dreams. He gave me written revelation. For years and years and years. And I bit my tongue a lot at church. And I would just share whatever it was that they were talking about. And I knew that there was things that were wrong. But I was like, well, the people are just imperfect. And I would give them a pass and whatever. And I continued in the church until 2013. And for some reason, I knew all about the Adam-God doctrine, but I didn't know that it was forbidden knowledge. No idea. I was so uh, unique. Yeah, I was so naive. And I was talking with my in-laws, and I, I talked with a couple other people, but I found out very quickly that you are not supposed to talk about the Adam Gunn doctrine. <laughs> anyway, so the state president calls me in and he's like, you believe in polygamy? Because I've been telling my mom, yeah, my mother-in-law, yeah, I believe in those things. Doesn't mean I'm going to live it. You know, you believe in polygamy? And you believe in the Adam God doctrine? I'm like, Brigham Young taught it. Like, what are you talking about? You know, like, I know you're not supposed to share deeper things at church because people aren't ready for it. But, like, I wasn't teaching it at church. And then he made inquiry about my experiences, which my mother-in-law, I'm sure, was the one that did it. She told him about these things. And I said, yeah, like... I was taken up, this happened, and I didn't tell him, I don't think I told him about the Father and the Son, but I did tell him about the experience in 95 in the Salt Lake Temple. Which, by the way, in 2004, I was commanded by the Father to write a letter and send it to President Hinckley, and I drew, drew diagrams. I was very, very detailed. And um, I knew that's what he was going to ask about. I kept this binder, and I have that letter with me. And it has off, like, since I sent it to the uh, the church headquarters, they, like, called my stake president on a Thursday, and he, and he said, hey, somebody wants to come, uh, wants to meet you. Can you please be to sac- the sacrament meeting room 30 minutes before sacrament starts because somebody wants to come meet you. So I'm there the next Sunday, and it was El Pomperi, and he came in, and he wanted to meet me, and he wanted to talk with me. And like the last thing he said, he slapped me on the back, and he said, well, God's the one that chooses his prophets, because we sure don't. And I was like, what does that even mean? But I was like so impressed. And it was kind of cool, because like it was a singles ward, 
and my first wife was with me when we were still dating and she forgot her glasses so she couldn't see who it was and she was like who's that and I'm like it's all Tom Perry and she's like no way and anyway but like I'd run into him before we used my ex wife and I the one that was with me before we got married we'd go to the Joseph Smith Memorial Building all the time after music and the spoken word and go to church with her great uncle who was Gordon B. Hinckley at the Joseph Smith Memorial Building so he slaps me on the back he says well God's one that chooses prophets because we sure don't and all of these singles people in my ward are walking in and seeing Al Tom Perry standing there talking to Mark Lickenwalter. And then he like he actually spoke at our meeting and while they were singing the last hymn, he actually got up and walked out and he waved at me and left, right? Well, I told my state president in 2013, here, this is from the church's archives. Here's the archive numbers. Here's the first presidency number. Here's the general vault number. You can talk to Al Palm Perry about these things. He's interviewed me about them. He, This man was red in the face and angry and did not care. He was angry about the Adam God doctrine. He told me I was a bald-faced liar, that I couldn't have those experiences, that the only person who could have that kind of experience is the prophet of the church, who at the time was Thomas Monson. But Thomas Monson knew me too, because I used to date one of his great nieces. In fact, she got revelation and told me that God told her that I was supposed to be her or her husband. And she was nice. And I liked her. But it never, it, it just, I was more interested in Rebecca than her. Anyway, but... Uh, I was scheduled for a disciplinary council so I could be excommunicated. Unless I recanted. And even though he could call and get an interview with Al Tom Perry, and Al Tom Perry knew exactly who I was, he refused. Now, at the time, we lived in upstate New Hampshire, and I had to drive down to Brockton, Massachusetts to get my truck, to drive my truck. And then later on, I transferred over to um, Hartfield, Connecticut. Or I think it was Hartfield. Anyway, it was in Connecticut. And I was an over-the-road truck driver for FedEx. And we would leave out on Sunday night and we would usually get home on Friday morning or Friday evening and we would have Saturday and Sunday off. And for some reason we couldn't get back in time and I called the state president and I said, hey, 
I'm trying to get back for this trial, but I'm stuck and I cannot get home. Can we please make the trial a different date? And he says, nope, you're getting excommunicated. And like, no trial? Like, he's already made his mind up. He's going to just excommunicate me without even looking at any of the evidence. And I have no way to, like, be at this thing. And I was so upset. And I was weeping and I was crying to God. And I was like, why is this happening to me? Because I was, I was ignorant. I didn't know. I knew that there were problems, but I didn't know the out-of-God doctrine was a problem, and I didn't know that, like, the state president or anybody would really freak out about my experiences. They really did happen. But it made this man so angry, and I wasn't able to attend my trial. And I was bitterly weeping questioning God, why is this happening to me? And he came to me again. No, he came to me this time. I didn't go to him. And he said, kneel down before me and ask me who you are. I'm like, what do you mean? (laughs) Like, what? (laughs) But I was obedient, and I knelt down before him, and I said, Father, who am I? And he took me up in the spirit again. And I saw a vast congregation of angels. And we came down like we're flying down above this congregation. I'm looking down on everything, and I'm in the spirit. And there is this platform, and in front of the platform, there is a a group of 12, and then on the platform, there is the Father, and then to his right, which would be my left, is Jesus Christ. And then to the right of the Father, which would be his left, is another man and I know that that is the Holy Ghost and God tells me this is a vision of the pre-existence and he tells me this is me you know this is Jesus and this is Lucifer which I was like what Lucifer what are you talking about why is he standing at a throne next to you at a platform on a platform and later on, I was taught that, you know, the, the father is called the morning star and that he comes in the morning of the history of, of creation, that the redeemer, God II, is the bright morning star and he comes at the noon of the history of creation, which he did, and that the evening star is God the witness of the Holy Ghost and he comes into mortality in the evening of the history of creation. And that that Lucifer was God the witness or the Holy Ghost. 
but he rebelled. He disrespected the father. He disrespected the son. He rebelled. He thought that he should have been the one to be the redeemer. But he was not chosen to be the redeemer. He was chosen to be the witness. And that the man that was chosen to be the redeemer he'd actually had hard disagreements with because of what they went through in prior mortal probation. And I saw Lucifer fight against the father and his son with testimonies and words. And I saw him lead away almost the majority of the hosts of heaven. And I saw the elect go among the hosts of heaven that had followed Lucifer and teach them and bring them back over to the plan of salvation. I also saw a division among the the mighty and strong ones who were generals in the armies of heaven and there was about a 50% split between Lucifer and Jesus, or Yeshua. I saw the Father strip Lucifer of his name and his title, which means bearer of white, Hillel, or in Latin, Lucifer, and he became Hasatan, or Satan. And he and those who followed him were cast out. After everything happened, after a third of the hosts of heaven were cast out, Satan's not there anymore, so he doesn't see it. But he knew that I was standing among the they who are mighty and strong, who are the generals and the armies of heaven. And the Father chose me to take the place of God the witness, or Lucifer. To fill the vacancy that had been lost. And that is why I have seen the Father and the Son face to face. And that is why I have embraced him in the flesh. And that is why God has shown me so many things. That's why he's given me revelation. And that's why he called me his final prophet. He came at the very beginning of the history of this earth. To provide bodies for us. For our spirits to dwell in. The Redeemer came in the meridian of time in the noon of the history of this earth to make a way for us to be redeemed from the fall. And I come at the end 
of the history of this celestial earth to teach they who had been weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast and to set the house of God in order. That is who I am. In this book that I'm going to be reading, probably for the rest of this week, it talks about what the prophet Qumran saw in his visions. Physical descriptions, characteristics, a whole bunch of stuff. And we're going to get into it. And I have created a poll at Facebook.com. Well, it's my group on Facebook. LDS Last Days Prophecy and Gospel Discussions. About which... Which book you want me to cover next? And I created that poll this morning. And it's Wednesday... March 2nd and only one person voted and he voted three times and only one of his votes was on the list of books that I said you know hey choose from these books if you have any other books that are online um, that are free to read online you know I can read those it's not a big deal fair use covers it you know, but put the links in the, in the comments below, and he didn't do that. But he put, he added two options to the polls. But only one of those books is uh, a book on the on the list that I gave to everyone, which was Holy Priest Volume Four, which is a book that I'm not reading again because it took me I don't know month or two or two and a half months or whatever it was to get through that book and that book's all about polygamy and we just went over that and I think he thought it was funny to do that since I'm all like I'm not doing any more books on polygamy right now I'm done with polygamy and he chooses the one book Holy Priesthood Volume 4 that talks about polygamy no sorry no Ha, 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 nice joke. And then the other two books that he put down are, you know, he didn't put the links down, so I'm like, whatever. But uh, nobody voted other than this one guy. You know, and I, I think that maybe, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I feel like, you know, if nobody cares, why am I wasting my time? Other than to make it so that you're beyond, I don't know, you're judged. I, I don't even know. And I don't care. I don't care. But I waste a lot of time trying to teach these things to people who don't care. And, you know, I don't know. If people don't want to vote on it. I mean, there's 4,000-something people in the group, and it's an active group. Nobody cares. Like, I don't know what to tell you people. I am so far spent. And you know what? I do enjoy reading these books, and I enjoy refreshing 
you know, and learning and all of that. And maybe I'll just keep doing it for that reason. But I have been doing this since God told me to start my first radio show podcast, internet radio show podcast, January of 2014. And since then, I've done so many podcasts. And I honestly don't know that it does any good. Because all it does is I get mocked, I get ridiculed, I get told, like I got told last night on the Zoom call. Oh, shucks, boy, it's all of the devil. You know, like, I've had death threats over this stuff. I get hate because of this stuff. I have been fired from jobs because they find out about my claims and I lose my livelihood because of this stuff. I have lost friends and family members because of this stuff. And I don't see the reward or benefit to to putting myself out there over the years and sharing these things openly where I have lost jobs, I've lost friends, I've lost money, I've been threatened on so many different levels, including with my life. And I continue to do it, and I don't know what the benefit is. So anyway, let's uh, see if Kim is on the line and see if Emma has anything to say and we'll figure it out after that. But yeah, we're going to be reading The Final Prophet, but this clip is getting too long. So here we go.
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.